And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. We're going to get an inside look at just exactly what happens in Washington. He got a chance to see the deep state up up front and personal, and we're gonna be talking about his experiences. And even though we all have a little bit, bit different perspectives on the world, we all recognize that America right now is in deep, deep trouble. If we don't turn things around, this nation in a matter of less than a decade will no longer exist as a free constitutional republic and also recognize that the new world order is a bunch of diabolical evil SOBs that need to be put out of business. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And today my guest is Todd McKinley. Todd spent 20 years as a professional soldier in uh, the U.S. Army. He was a non-commissioned officer, made it up through the ranks to the very, uh, very top. And he became a kind of a White House military liaison. I'm going to, I'm going to use that term. That may not be the exact correct uh, description or title, but Todd, I have to tell you, I, uh, I spent two years uh, in the uh, early 70s in Washington, D.C. at Fort McNair, headquarters U.S. Army as a facility engineer working as a architect uh, in training there. And I was offered the White House Communication Corps, uh, which I turned down because I didn't want to spend the extra eight months that were necessary for the training that they wanted me to go through. Uh, in the Army. I just wanted to get my tour of duty out of the way and uh, get back to civilian life. And that was, of course, uh, during Vietnam. And uh, Vietnam was still going hot and heavy when I, uh, and I did volunteer for the draft, but I volunteered for the draft because I had uh, just gotten out of college. I knew that I was going to get drafted. I knew that it was coming up, so I decided, well, I'm going to show a little patriotism here, good old red, white, and blue, and uh, everybody was heading for Canada and doing all this insane crap that 
you know, at the time I still believed, and I still believe in our government. I do not believe in our leaders. Todd, thank you for being our guest. This is going to be a, a fantastic interview. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, your early life and how you turned into a, a patriot extraordinaire. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Dan. How do you read me over there? Great, great. Everything uh, looks good. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Now, a lot of stuff you said there in the intro, yeah, yeah, is is true. You know, grew up in Northeast Tennessee, a place called Kingsport, which is right there on my website, ToddMcKinley.com. You can check out my bio. And I, I always say that I like to be as open as I possibly can, you know, especially for somebody who does, you know, like you said, a podcast, which I do basically a radio show now. I kind of uh, shelled my podcast a couple of years ago when I started doing the Common Sense Conservatives radio show. Um you know, but 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 still trying to reach people just the same like you're talking about, and uh, and I could touch on media here in just a minute, uh, which p shows like this is is just where where people need to go and actually look for look for the truth, if you will, real objective truth. I, I believe that's the way to go. But you know, I grew up playing the the sports like you said, the the real American sports, uh, baseball, basketball, football, and you know, all through high school, joined the army in 1996 and did a full career, 20 years, 29 days, and retired in 2016 while serving. I uh, served in uh, Iraq as a military uh, advisor to the Iraqi police forces and Iraqi army, and then served in Afghanistan with a, as, as a um, platoon sergeant in the 82nd Airborne, then as a liaison to the Combined Joint Task Force East. Uh, also served before that uh, six and a half years at the White House military office uh, within the White House Communications Agency uh, for six and a half years, actually. And it, for the Army, it was a, originally a four-year tour. Uh, but they extended me because we had the 04 campaign going on, the re-election of Bush Cheney. So since I was a vice president's communications officer at the time, doing a lot of advanced work for the vice president, uh, they extended me for a year. Uh, then I re-enlisted for, for the final time, which stabilized me for, for an additional year. Then I had orders, like I said, to Iraq, which was which put me for like another six months because I wasn't supposed to report uh, uh, for that assignment for another six months. So a full six and a half years there, and I got to see – Bush, Cheney, Obama, Biden, up close and personal. After retiring, I served with the um, the inaugural committee for, for President Trump and then did four years as a staff associate uh, while doing other things outside of the White House. Because uh, as, as an associate, you're not actually in D.C. full-time. You're there whenever they need you, or you do a lot of travel uh, as, as an associate, which is what I did. I, did, I was an advanced associate. So a lot of advanced work for President Trump, and especially uh, Mike Pence at the time, uh, around the world and, of course, across the country, then got to serve on the uh, his re-election campaign, as I think you may have touched on there. So I got to mm -hmm. see a lot of different presidents and vice presidents up close and personal from, you know, being on helicopters with them, being on Air Force Two, Air Force One, what have you. And, of course, being able to see a lot of this stuff up close and personal and, and hearing a lot of these conversations that would go that go on behind the scenes. And, you know, I'm not going to touch on anything that, that's cl still classified or that I have a, uh, you know, a, a non-disclosure agreement on. But some of this stuff is, is, is stuff that was done in the open that should be discussed, I think. And a lot of it uh, has to do with the, the brief uh, six-month period that I spent uh, traveling with, with Joe Biden because we were down to, I think, only three to four of us that were traveling. So instead of doing a 24-hour shift, sometimes we were doing 72 hours or more of a shift. So I got to be, be around him quite a bit within that, that six-month window, which is kind of interesting. 
Mm-hmm. How better it was. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Was. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, I, and I can jump into some of those stories here in a minute, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I know the area really well. Like I say, I of course, I was in 1972, 73 yeah. uh, was when I was out in D.C. And uh, I know the area well. I know a lot of the politics well. Uh, I actually uh, worked, uh, as I say, uh, with the... Uh, uh, facilities engineers at Fort McNair worked on the War Colleges, met uh, Omar Bradley, uh, you know, worked on Quarters One for uh, the, the uh, generals at uh, Arlington and did a lot of stuff that was very, very interesting. But the one thing you learn is that uh, Washington, D.C. is a world unto its own, and it has no connection whatsoever with the United States of America uh, that exists outside of the uh, District of Criminals. And um, <laughs> I, I, you know, That's it's amazing it. to me what a, what a, uh, what a different world it is, and frankly, that's why so many of them. And I, I have, I have friends who are congressmen. I have people that I work with that I know very well. But it's it's amazing how that, how so many of them uh, just completely change after they've become part of the swamp creatures. Yeah, and, absolutely. It, it's a, t- a totally different world, and people have no way of really understanding it unless they're actually there and see it. And I, I spent uh, roughly uh, just a hair over two years um, in D.C., and I got to see it all firsthand. And all I can say is that uh, I'm looking forward to your updated perspective because you're ahead of me about 25, 30 years uh, and uh, and so I'd like to hear kind of what your observations were. Uh, first of all, you know, I uh, the the uh, war in the Middle East, the so-called war on terror. I think right. we all recognize now what a mess that ended up being. But um, we're all patriots. I I would have gladly died for my country had that need existed. Had the Lord put me in that position, I would have done it. And frankly, it would have been a waste of a human life. And how many people wasted their lives in the Middle East uh, because of, you know, the politics of all this. So please, I don't want to, I don't want to direct your, your discussion. I want you to lead this and just take it where you want to take it. Yeah, no, I, I I kind of agree with you there in a lot of respects. You know, think about you know what you just touched on. You know, about dying in the Middle East, the the war on the quote unquote war on terror, which kind of lost its rails whenever they decided they wanted to go into Iraq for you know no three, which is what what was the point of going there? You know, they 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 had nothing to do with nine eleven as we're finding out. You know, regardless of the fact of you know whether they had WMDs once upon a time or not whether or not they used you know gas on their own people or not is besides the point they had nothing to do with 911 which was the premise and of course if you watch any number of r- realistic documentaries or know anybody who worked behind the scenes you know uh, the, the intelligence community the IC uh, could not find any any real reason to go into Iraq, but they set up a special division, if you will. Uh, it may, may not be the right term, as you said, but you know, a special division within the the uh, the, the the Defense Department there, within the Secretary's office, uh, an intelligence cell, 
uh, to find evidence, and I'll do air quotes again there, is is to, uh, to, to justify going into Iraq. And most of it was flimsy information. Of course, a lot of it was based on, you know, uh, per, the perspective of people who, who, wanted, who wanted to go back into Iraq as the rulers who hadn't stepped foot in, in Iraq in probably 20 or 30 years since the Saddam had taken power. You know, people that were feeding information to people in the IC or in the administration, uh, and it was all false or, or it was information that was 30 some years old, some of it. Uh, so people with an agenda, and of course, Bush wanted to go in and, and take out Saddam because, uh, he, you know, the, the re reality is, is Bush 41, his father had been, you know, a target of assassination by Saddam, and it was on his top of his assassination list. But regardless, he never got to Bush 41, obviously. He died of old age, you know, as we all know. Uh, but So there was no drill justification to go into Iraq. So we lost our way with the war on terror right there. Uh, just a couple of years into it, whenever we were in the right place in Afghanistan, going after the people uh, and, and rounding them up in, with great success and actually bringing that thing to an actual end to where we could successfully leave, I think, Afghanistan, uh, having killed many, many terrorists. But then we, we we go into Iraq, and the next thing you know, we radicalize a lot of people in Iraq and in Afghanistan and other places around the world that we had no business of you know firing off missiles or, or chasing anybody too. Uh, you know, falsely, you know, the, the the war was in Afghanistan, pure and simple. And I think we lost our way with with the with the war on terror at that point. And of course, the rest is history with with our national debt. You know, has skyrocketed from that point. Yeah, and 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 Todd, you obviously know the area very well. But uh, uh, Saddam Hussein had actually kept Iran in check yes. uh, since the mullahs took over Iran. And it had become a, a theocracy. Uh, Saddam was a, a great uh, stabilizer in the Middle East, and when we took him out, uh, we basically it's like kicking a kicking a hornet's nest. Uh, and and you're right, we radicalized an awful lot of people that would not have been our enemies in any way, shape, or form had we not gone there. And I use this as an example. If, uh, let's say, uh, China decides they don't like the way we're running our country and they send troops over here, do you think that we wouldn't do the same thing that many of the Iraqis did uh, to right. try to fight whoever invades their country. That sure. is absolutely stupid. If we understand anything about national patriotism, we have to understand the fact that you cannot invade another country and expect right. them to love you for it. Right. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of a, of, a, of a Charlie Daniels song. You know, he says, you know, we might have been done a little bit of fighting amongst ourselves, but, you know, you outside people best leave us alone. Uh, you know, we maybe do a little infighting with with words and on social media and on the new news, uh, if you will, in the evenings. Uh, Democrat, Republican, right versus left, etc. But you know, if China decided they want to bring their army over here, all of a sudden our focus would would, would drastically shift. With and I'm sure there would be people that would uh, go along with it and try to you know uh, you know play play to them and kind of sell people out. But the majority of Americans would be like, let's focus on China first, uh, then we'll deal with our internal differences uh, after that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But you think about Iraq as an example. What what did we do? You know, we invaded. We 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 rolled into Baghdad pretty quickly. We we ousted Saddam. Saddam and his, his sons went on went on the run. Uh, we found him hiding a little spider hole or rabbit hole, or whatever you want to call it. You know, disheveled, looking like some you know a, a old man living on the street. Uh, and, and that's what the people wanted. They wanted to be, be rid of, of the strongmen. They wanted to be rid of the Ba'ath Party, and that was it. But it's whenever we kicked everybody, the lower level Ba'ath Party members, out of government. 
and we disbanded the military, that everything radicalized at that point. Had we not done that, I think things would have been a lot different in Iraq. We could have probably left, and George Bush could have said, you know, hey, mission accomplished, and actually meant it on that aircraft carrier, when in reality, things just were, were just starting at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, like I said, uh, um, Saddam had been a, a spoiler for the uh, Iranians there because right. uh, he kept them in check. And uh, and and frankly, the United States, our uh, our policy as a country, our uh, State Department policy was to support him right. against the, the mullahs because the mullahs had done what they did when they took uh, the Shah out of power. And right. took hostages, American hostages, and of course we had quite a mess over that. But um, you know, why would you want to lead Saddam into believing that uh, he he was being supported, and then pull the rug out from under him? Right. Yeah. Because you think about it, just after the hostages, what happened? The Iraq-Iran war started. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you see many videos and photos of DoD officials, Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, secretaries of state and, and other people over there in the Middle East, over in Iraq, shaking hands with Saddam, being their best pal. When we were supporting them against Iran, we were giving them money, we were giving them weapons and things like that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, whenever you don't need him, you know, and he, he invades Kuwait or what have you, then all of a sudden, it's like, well, we got to focus our attention against him, which I understand during the first Gulf War, you know, in the 1990s. I understand going after him at that point. Uh, but whenever 2003 rolled around, he had been basically marginalized at that point since uh, since we had left uh, after the Desert Storm. Uh, he was doing nothing, you know, of any great importance outside of Iraq. I mean, he had no way of projecting power anywhere. Uh, let alone throughout the greater Middle East. So why, why would you think that he would want to rattle the, you know, the quote-unquote great Satan's uh, cage uh, and, and, and try to upset his uh, his uh, power in Iraq? Because he knew we could take him out at any point. And we could have taken him out from, with, from standoff distances, you know, many, many, many miles away and hit him with, with, with a nice cruise missile that would have just taken him out. Uh, we had those capabilities, you know. So wh- why would you think that he would, you know, s- go against the, you know, this military who could go up against any conventional military in the world and win in, in head-to-head combat? Why would he? Why would Iraq want to do something like that? And, and, and Saddam Hussein risk his power. He he, he wasn't going to throw his lot in with with uh, you know the Taliban and uh, with Osama bin Laden for sure because they they were actually enemies uh, of one another. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well. Um... <clears throat> I'll go back even a little bit further. We go back to the Shah. We supported the Shah, and uh, I think rightly so, because uh, Iran was uh, the uh, really the most Western country in the in the Middle East. Christianity and could exist beside. uh, the the Islam, Islam state, right. uh, same thing in Iraq. Uh, Christian churches were prevalent all over the country, as well as uh, you know Islam. So right. you know we what we did when we took out uh, through very very poor policies, and I, I you know uh, Jimmy Carter was one of the worst presidents ever. Not because he was a bad man. I think he was actually quite a good uh, yeah. man. Right, uh, but he was a uh, he, he was a typical liberal 
uh, typical progressive socialist. He didn't have uh, the slightest idea how human nature works. And so he always wanted to believe things that weren't necessarily true. Right, right. Well, you you know the term Jimmy who, whenever he was running for president, you know, and he would go, <laughs> he, he would go out to people in Georgia and he says, I'm Jimmy Carter, I'm running for president. And they're like, president of what? You know, the local co-op? <laughs> You know, people had no idea. You know, he'd been like a one or two term state senator who, you know, through through the grace of God, you know, I, I guess right place, right time. Everybody was running. He became a Georgia, the governor for one term. And then it was just right for, you know, to beat Republicans that they're looking for somebody that was a good palate cleanser. I think Democrats were looking for somebody who didn't have a, 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 a bad mark against them like the Kennedy family did. Of course, Ted Kennedy at that point, it kind of ruined the, the Kennedy name. And they couldn't rely on him to win a national election. So they're like looking around, looking around. They're like, well, this guy may be able to carry the South, uh, which, you know, the, up to that point, Nixon had carried the South very successfully in two elections. And they're like, let's go with this guy. He, he seems to be a, a decent guy that we can push across the finish line. And that's basically what happened. Because Ford, after he pardoned Nixon, kind of he, he blew blew his chance to become president in his own right. I think at that point, and everybody had had enough of eight eight years of the Nixon, you know, administration uh, uh, with Watergate and everything else. So they wanted to go with 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 the only alternative, which was Democrats. And of course, uh, Jimmy Carter just happened to be the right guy at the right place, right time, and he had the right uniform on. And uh, you know, th th I think the rest is history. And of course, you know, we we can't go with somebody who had no no real experience and no business being being anything outside the state of Georgia. Well, you know, Todd, it's funny, but you, you, uh, n nothing ever happens by accident in politics. And, yeah. uh, FDR is famous for saying that. He says, if it, <laughs> if it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. And uh, a lot of people don't understand that, uh, Jim, Jimmy Carter was, uh, Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral. Uh, Commission. He, he was, yeah, he was part of the cabal. Uh, the, and, and frankly, they've all been moving us toward global government. And that, that's the bottom line. Everything that's been happening has been happening to move us into a one-world socialist government that uh, a handful of internationalists control, mainly bankers. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'm... I, I'm getting ahead of myself with that, but Jimmy Carter, even though you know it looked like he came out of nowhere, these people come out of nowhere, and Obama's certainly a perfect example of that. Oh, uh, a big time, because yeah. they're hand selected by the the ultimate uh, uh, puppet masters at the top of the thing. They're selected because they're corruptible. They're controllable and they're easy to uh, get to do things that uh, are not uh, in the be right. America's best interests. Right. Well, you think about it, Jimmy Carter and, and Obama, the two we're talking about here, people who, you know, in most mm -hmm. any other circumstances would have never been the person you're looking for to become president. Uh, Obama, especially 2004, he, what did he do? He gave a nice speech uh, at the at the Democrat National Convention. And it was very. It was a very even kill speech that if he had given it at the Republican convention at that point would have been well at home. And so you have people on the right that are like, "Wow, this sounds like a good speech. He seems reasonable enough, uh, you know." But he hadn't even been elected to the U.S. Senate at this point. He was still a state senator in Illinois. And they started talking about him at, right after the speech. I remember CNN, MSNBC, and others talking about, "Oh, well, is he going to run for president in, in the next uh, four years?" And it's like, "Wait a minute, isn't John Kerry your nominee right now?" 
wouldn't you think John Kerry would be running for re-election? So they had an idea that John Kerry probably wasn't going to get elected in 04. So therefore, they're like, well, who's going to run in 08 when Bush's term is up? You know, because they figured George Bush is getting re-elected. He's overwhelmingly, you know, more popular than John Kerry. He's easily elected, uh, re-elected president. Uh, who's next? Well, here's here's a guy who checks all the blocks. He, he he's mixed race, speaks well. People, you know, don't really know much about his policies because he he really had no policy. Everything he mm -hmm. took was was some, from somebody else. You know, he had no real ideas of his own. They were all somebody else's ideas. So they're like, we could use this guy and build upon this speech that he just gave uh, and, and and run with him. So I don't know if he was if it was planned that he he was going to be a guy they're going to try to set up uh, to to run at some point, or whether it just by chance he got a speaking slot, gave a great speech, and they they co opted him from there. I don't know. Probably like you said, it was probably pre planned mm -hmm. uh, in, in advance to to at least give give set him up as an option down the road. Uh, who knew that it was going to be four years later though. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's fascinating. If you look at uh, Obama's uh, political career, uh, he was basically uh, appointed to a, a state Senate position, uh, didn't even serve a full term as that, ended up right. as a U.S. senator, uh, and then U.S. president. And, and nobody in any credible situation no. would be able to do that. No, absolutely not. I mean, even the, some of the smartest people, you know, and I know, I know several state senators say here in Tennessee alone, some very smart, credible people, good people, you know, but I, I could never see them, even though they've been in the state Senate for many years, I couldn't see them, you know, being elected uh, governor in the next few years, let alone president of the United States, you know, and then even people with some pretty good name recognition in the region that they serve within the state. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense that somebody could just all of a sudden be catapulted, you know, to be become president. Of course, this day and age with social media the way that it is and the 24-hour news cycle, uh, anybody can be propped up to to be anything within within a few a few days, weeks, or months, or you know, you give it just enough time that they can set you up to be, you know, whatever they want you to be for sure. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're saying <laughs> that because that's really kind of the the uh, the the focus of our discussion, but let's get into the uh, different uh, different uh, tours you had, what you got involved in. Um, love to hear about your uh, time working with uh, uh, China Joe Biden and uh, <laughs> some of the uh, other people at the uh, uh, White House. Uh, I, I use that term loosely now because, uh, frankly, it's not as white as it used to be. Uh, and I don't mean that in any racial term. I no, mean you, how, how dirty it is. It yeah. is so dirty. Yeah, everything is so dirty. Um, so let, let's talk about your time uh, in uh, dealing with uh, different uh, presidents, vice presidents, and politicians. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, to, to, to kind of outline what, what job I was doing at the time, I mentioned earlier I was a vice president of communications officer. So I did a lot of advanced work for, for Cheney. Then also for uh, briefly, I did a couple of Biden trips, but mostly uh, I did uh, what is called vice presidential communications response officer. We've since, they've since changed the name to vice presidential response officer. So I may alternatively just say VPRO from here out. Uh, but what, what, what that job was is you carried the communications football. And you probably heard of the nuclear football. So we worked in tandem with the military aides who carried the nuclear football. 
uh, and also with the physician to the vice president and the special agent in charge of the, the Secret Service detail, we were known as what is the emergency actions team. So any 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 decision that would need to be made in an emergency situation, say 9-11 as an example, uh, would be made by those four core individuals, depending on the scenario uh, that was being played out. And of course, it would be my job as the emergency communicator to make me. Uh, Establish communications with different places that we may may go to around the world, around the country. Say, like Bush, for example, whenever he left Florida, he went to New Orleans and then went to uh, Offutt Air Force Base. So making contact with places like that and connecting uh, the dots of, as to what communications assets are available there would be kind of my role. Uh, and also at the same time, if the vice president were needed to, needed to make an address to the nation, it would be my job to kind of uh, – the emergency alert system, if you want. I'm sure you see TV on a regular basis or radio with those uh, uh, tests, the weekly updated test. You know, it'd be my job to break in with an actual message from whether I recorded the message or whether we were going to go live. Basically, I, I had the assets available to be able to uh, broadcast a message, if you will, from the vice president who at this point would have been become president or acting president if, if the president's uh, whereabouts were unknown, if you will. Say, for example, a nuclear strike hit Washington, D.C. We didn't know if the president was alive. So that that's kind of the role of, uh, that I played there, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But so I got to see a lot of up close stuff. And, and you know, uh, I was in the room for a lot of different things. And, and you know, like I said, on the helicopter, Marine 2, I was sit right behind the vice president, uh, Air Force 2, wherever he would go in the, in the motorcade. We were right there with him, 24-7, 365. There was... Uh, four of us that would rotate duty again, 24, 24 hour duty, sometimes on weekends, 72 hours. But, but anyway, so you get to see a lot of things. You get to deal with a lot of things and I'm not going to go into the whole classified situation, but things that I saw Joe Biden do out in the open public, things that members of the public saw him do on Amtrak. And I talked about this on, uh, on Newsmax a couple of times before where he would read classified documents that, that, that were clearly stamped, you know, uh, top secret, uh, you know, uh, the top and bottom. And then sometimes they would say no foreign, no foreign nationals can have this. Or it would also spell out some other classification if there, if there was, uh, you know, code word uh, that, that's involved within these documents. But he was reading them openly on Amtrak. And I, I pointed to the military and I said, sir, you know, I'd poke the mill aide who was sitting right beside me. And I pointed, I said, sir, look at this. And we're, and by the way, he's Joe Biden at this point is sitting right in front of us on the Amtrak, and I can see it clearly what he's reading. And it's kind of up like this, and he's trying to make sense of the words. And I, I'm looking behind me, kind of tilting my head like I'm doing, and I see all these people behind us. And now this was the day before smartphones became smartphones, but you still had camera phones. And, and people also carried little, little digital cameras, and they were holding them up, trying to zoom in on what he was reading because they knew. Wow they knew it was something interesting. So I, I, I told the military aide, and he kind of leaned up and said, sir, you might want to be careful reading those documents here. You know, wait till we get to Delaware or wherever we were going. And he's like, oh, no, all these people here are friends of mine. I, I know these people. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're fine, you know. He's like, I've been reading documents on here for years, and I've never had an issue. And I'm like, you're, you're talking about reading classified documents in an open train car where regular everyday citizens and civilians and who knows who else is mm -hmm. on here? You know, it, it could it could be just a, you know, and DC's full of spies, kind of like Berlin was back in the day. You never know who might be on that train just by chance, saying, "Oh, the vice president's going to be on that train." Let me go ahead and buy a ticket to wherever he's going, or or buy a ticket for a few stops just to kind of maybe get a listen or or watch to see what's going on, uh, or get an idea of how the Secret Service uh, acts around him and see if there's an opportunity for me to slip in and do something. Uh, so has no idea who's on these train cars because they, they weren't swept. Nobody nobody was wanted or anything like that because nobody knew exactly which train car we were going to ride on. 
except for maybe a handful of Secret Service who had already staked out a few seats for us to sit in, and that was about it. We, we, we created a little buffer section with some Secret Service agents, and of course, uh, myself, the military, and the physician created a little buffer by taking up seats around the vice president, along with a couple of key staff members. So everybody else was 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 uh, civilians or, or, or spies or whoever, as he's reading these documents. And, and, and of course, there was another occasion where he was doing the same thing again, and I had to stand up behind him because there was people, again, holding up cameras and holding up their little smart, or not smartphone, but the little camera phone. Uh, thankful that the, the cameras on those things wasn't good enough to get a clear picture for sure. Uh, but I stood up to have, to have to block as he's reading these documents because I knew he wasn't going to put them down. And then he asked to make a phone call on another trip. And, of course, it's my job as the communicator to establish the the, the, the comms network. I said, sir, who, who, who do you want to talk to? And he's like, well, I want to speak to the situation room. you know. So I was like, sure, sure, no problem. Let me connect you. And I connected him uh, uh, secure using what was called a QSEC, which was a secure cell phone, uh, with the situation room. Now, mind you, the conversation he's about to have is only as secure as he wants it to be. Mind you. <laughs> In that situation, if he had to be on a secure call, he should have only li listened to what's being said on the other end, and you know, basically not nodding or, or saying yes or no to you know to questions. Instead, he engaged in an actual classified conversation that he would have had in the skip, like the situation room, in an open train car. And I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? And I told him, sir, <laughs> I said, you know, I said, sir, you might want to just you know acknowledge that you're on the call and, and let them know where you're at, that you can't really engage fully and just say yes and no. And again, he gave me the whole, uh, it gave me the whole little, Oh, okay. Thanks. You know, I got you. And he kind of gave me a little, the brush off. And then he moved from his seat up to like a, a little area near the lavatory. Like he thought it was more secure up there. And I'm like, well, now you're just standing in front of everybody looking like a moron using a cell phone and nobody, <laughs> nobody else on this train certainly has for sure. Uh, having that open conversation, which I'm like, you, you're still not secure here, my friend, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was three occasions like that, that just kind of gave me the the taste of my mouth of this, who this, this guy is. And this is whenever he had basically most of his faculties at that point. So I'm like, if he's that way, when he had his faculties, think about where, what he is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That that's uh, exactly uh, the kind of, uh, action that nobody other than someone like yourself would have privy to. But right. I've, I've heard the very same uh, kind of comments made by people that, uh, uh, and, and it was the same thing with Hillary Clinton. I, I don't think you probably uh, had opportunity to uh, be around her, but that's maybe you, <laughs> okay, good. I want to hear it because, yeah. uh, you know, her, her uh, a private server and all the, uh, literally thousands and thousands of emails that ended up all over God knows where uh, right. because of her lapse of uh, credible, uh, well, I'll just say credible intelligence. Uh, you know, she she allowed a lot of things to happen there too. These people, I that I kind of gets back to my point. When you're in the the district of criminals, you realize that they live in a whole different world. It's like a bubble, and uh, common sense doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with anything, does it? No, absolutely not. And uh, and I can tell you that the uh, I mean I had several several Hillary Clinton stories for sure. Um, you know, and one was whenever she was Secretary of State. We were at the Washington Hilton. Uh, AKA the Hinckley Hilton, which is where John Hinckley tried to kill President Reagan. If you, I'm sure you remember those days. Um, 
But of course, since then, they build like a, a nice bunker where the president or any dignitary can arrive in safely. Uh, and of course, be secure from any any gun, gunshots or any, any any small bomb blast, if you will. If you, I'm sure if you've been back to Washington, D.C. and been to the Hilton, you, you've probably seen this uh, garage area where you can drive in and drive out uh, safe and secure, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once the, once the president arrives, the, the, the rule was the doors are supposed to remain closed. You know, you let in the Secret Service that's supposed to come through the, the door and any, any military or any staff. But once they're in and, and secure, they lock, they shut the doors. And then, of course, uh, that then they'll open the limo and let the president out. And he'll go upstairs and go do what he has to do and come back. But we're on the radio. And, of course, we're sitting near what is called offstage announce. Just before you go into the ballroom, uh, uh, the vice president is standing there talking to the president. And we're just kind of waiting on Hillary Clinton because there's a, some event going on. I can't remember the exact event. But this is early in the administration, and I think it was like March. Um, uh, so President Obama had been in office, but just two, three months at this point. And we, we're hearing on the radio some chatter from the outside, a Secret Service agent having an argument, and we hear the voice, and it's Hillary Clinton. And I'm like, holy cow. This agent is actually standing his ground against Hillary Clinton. And you hear him say, ma'am, I, I can't let you in this door. I, I, I apologize. The rule is I, I can't open the door for anybody. Even though she she had technically had Secret Service detail, and he was a young agent in the Washington field office, didn't didn't know that hey it is okay to open the door for her, uh, and and her detail. He was he he was just going off of the information he was told. Don't open the door for anybody, and he's standing a post. So you know your boss tells you not to open the door. You're not opening that door for anybody. Even the even Hillary Clinton, the former first lady, now Secretary of State. So she's kind of going back and forth, and then uh, you know, there's the radio chatter is from the military aides uh, radio who didn't have a serve kit in a, a little curly cue, if you will. Uh, you, you could hear the chatter, and he go, and the president goes, "What's going on? What is that?" And he, and then the military leans over to him, and says, "Sir, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, she's outside." And if he didn't say Hillary, he said he used her code name uh, and is outside. And he's like, "Well, who's who's that?" He goes, "Hillary Clinton, sir." He's like, "Oh, okay." And he goes, well, well, what's the problem? And he explained to him, you know, the well, the, the agent is not supposed to open the door, and, and he's standing his ground and, and not letting her in. He's telling, trying to route her around to a different door. And he goes, he goes, well, technically that's the right answer. He's like, but you know, go ahead and open the door and let her in. So oh, the door opens. He, she comes in. Her detail comes in, and uh, next thing that she's coming up the hallway, and she's cursing, cursing, cursing. And I'm like, why is she cursing at the president? You know, who certainly outranks her. Uh, and certainly beat her in the in the primary, and then he's like, "All right, here, well, calm down, calm down. Well, well, what's the problem?" And she's explaining the problem from her standpoint, and he's like, "Okay, here, I'll have a talk to him. It won't happen again. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. Let's just calm down." And of course, we're standing there. You have two two militaries, one for the president, one for the vice president. They're in uniform, and of course, myself and and my counterpart on the president's side are, are military, and of course, the physicians are military as well, White House medical unit physicians. And she knows who we are. When she knows we're military, and then she goes, "Why are you allowing them to stand right next to offstage announce? You need to have them down the hallway in a hold room, uh, away from you." You know, Bill and I ne- never allowed them to to be this close to us. You know, and it's in. He's like, "Hillary, they're okay. They're, they're you know they're clear to hear whatever we have to say." And, and she's like, "Well, it's not that. It's because of the other conversations we might have 
they don't need to know about it. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm recollecting a guy who had actually was a military aide who wrote a book, Dereliction of Duty, which was about the nuclear codes that uh, President Clinton had lost. I think at that point they, they had, a, that's whenever they had their issues with people. Of course, you know, we're not going to go out and discuss anything with anybody unless you're doing something that's truly illegal. Uh, or that's truly detrimental to the American people. And of course, I think some people like that who wrote a, write books about people like that is it, for good reason. And of course, you know, I, the reason I'm telling you this story now is to give you an idea of uh, the kind of, type of character these people are. And, and she's saying, you don't, you don't want these people in the military close to us because they may, they may actually go tell the truth on you. And, and that's really why she didn't want us around them. So that, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. No, I've heard those stories from others that uh, were there as well. That's wonderful. Um, all right. Well, can continue, Todd, because uh, this is a fascinating walk through uh, some really interesting personalities. Um, go ahead. Just uh, t tell us about some other things that uh, uh, happened in in your time in the White House. Well, well, I can tell you the uh, the current Secretary of State, whenever he was a uh, the Biden's National Security Advisor as Vice President. We were in the we were in the motorcade uh, outside West Executive, which is just out, uh, between the uh, White House, uh, the West Wing, and the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. If you know where that's at, um, mm -hmm. of course you have a lot of motorcades arriving there, departing there on a regular basis. That's where the Vice President's motorcade uh, parks itself um, after it comes down from the Naval Observatory, which is the Vice President's official residence. And we're we're waiting to motorcade uh, either to an event or back to the uh, residence. I can't remember. I think it was to an event uh, in D.C. somewhere. Uh, and then Anthony Blinken, he's, he gets in the car and he's asking questions. Now, he's the national security advisor to the vice president. Uh, normally, you would think it's going to be somebody who has an idea of national security, uh, you know, international affairs or what have you. Now, mind you, he did have family members who had been ambassadors, uh, which kind of helped him get his uh, get his foot in the door there in Washington, D.C., or otherwise he would have no, no, no use in D.C. Um, but. He was asking basic questions about, you know, the military, national security and stuff like that. And and the military aide and I looked at each other, and this was after we, we had arrived at our destination. And we're like, did that sound? And this was, he was an Army army uh, officer at the time. So I'm in the Army, he's in the Army. And we're, we're thinking, isn't that questions like a, a newly minted uh, Army private or PFC would actually be asking? And, and I said, yes, sir, those are questions a, a basic PFC, just out of basic training, might ask. Uh, you know, a drill sergeant or, you know, uh, somebody who's been in the Army more than two days. Um, you know, those are just basic questions about national security in the military. And I'm like, he's the national security advisor, should have, should know these questions without any doubt, you know, whether mm -hmm. he served in the military or not. Uh, and it was just very eye-opening of these are the people that are making decisions on, on our behalf uh, and trying to keep us safe. And uh, they have no idea of, of the basic stuff of our national security apparatus. So, you know, that was kind of mm -hmm. eye-opening there for sure. When, uh, what year was that that uh, Blinken was uh, making those comments? So yeah, so it was uh, early '09. So the, yeah, okay. so March, March, February, uh, you know, in, into like May of '09. I I stopped traveling uh, in May of '09, and I signed out on leave May of May of that, of that year, and of course uh, officially left in, in June of '09. So had no 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 more connection with them outside of those first five to six months in office, but saw a lot of stuff that you know just really opened my eyes to a lot of things that, that goes on. And now, mind you, I had you know seen a lot of things in, in the Bush Cheney White House as well. 
but mm-hmm. most of the most of that stuff was from people who were who were senior and, and very uh, seasoned officials, if you will, who had been around multiple administrations, who had or or had served in the military or in national security uh, in different uh, levels across you know different administrations, as I said. Uh, so people that you know were very competent of what they were talking about, uh, regardless of the the Iraq uh, debacle and invasion is besides the point. Almost everything else, they, they kind of had an idea, uh, understanding of national security, international affairs, and things like that. So I didn't see things like that going on, even even early early on. Whenever I got there in 2002, uh, which was you know not even midway through the first uh, term of Bush, uh, you, you had people that were very seasoned giving a good advice to, to the president, and vice president. So you know th- these issues were, really weren't something that I that I that I witnessed uh, with those guys. Mm-hmm. Well, you know it's fascinating, but there, there's a saying: those who fail to uh, participate in representative government are bound to be led by their inferiors. And right. uh, what, what you're saying reinforces that uh, very well, because uh, the fact is, is that I do believe that uh, people are handpicked uh, by the puppet masters to, to be in positions of power. Talk maybe a little bit about your experiences around the Obamas. Uh, well, I can tell you, I, I did. I, I wasn't around the, the Obamas that much. I can tell you, um, some of their staff members, some of their senior staff members, on, on occasion in passing, uh, or you know, if there was a meeting where you know the vice president happened to be there uh, somewhere. Uh, but other than that, I, I didn't get get a lot of insight into the, to Obama. Uh, I, I, I'd see seen him occasionally in the hallway. Uh, or, or a couple of Oval Office calls that I, you know, w- w- was privy to, and of course my, what we call a boss call at the end, whenever you come in and take the photo with the president, and of course they have a line of people out the door uh, wrapped around the buildings sometimes taking those photos. So that's more or less my my in person experience as president. But I can tell you, there's one one story I do have going back to when uh, Vice, uh, Vice President Cheney was still in office. Of course, being president of the Senate, we'd go up to the 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 the, the Senate on a regular basis. Uh, especially if there was a close vote, and we would kind of camp out outside his uh, Senate office, which is right there behind the dais where all the senators come in and out of. Uh, there's a little hallway back there, and of course, there's some different a- ante rooms that they can meet in. And of course, the vice president's Senate office is right there. And we were kind of just camped out there, waiting on, you know, what wh- is is the vote going to take place? Is it going to be a tie vote, or uh, is the vice president going to be needed? And occasionally, you know, he 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 would go in and maybe cast a tie vote, or uh, we would just be meeting with members of the Senate there, just kind of in his office. And we're just kind of outside his Senate office, just waiting to to depart or do whatever he's going to do. And of course, he would go up for Senate policy lunch on a regular basis, too, and sometimes spend time in his Senate office. And this is an occasion where there was a close vote, and all the senators were coming and going, coming and going, and just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And here comes Obama, and I'm sitting outside this little, little, uh, I don't know, little chamber, if you will, in a little... Uh, it's almost like a waiting area, if you will, a big waiting area. Uh, if you're trying to board a train or something, and Obama's on a phone on his cell phone having a conversation. He's running for president at this point, and of course, I'm being professional. I stand up and I, you know, kind of give him a little head nod and I say, you know, hello, Senator. Give him the greeting of the day. He looks r- de- dead in my eyes, probably as close as I'm sitting to this phone. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, probably across maybe ten feet away. Stops, looks me dead in the eye. Turns uh, like 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 a, a like a column left. If you remember the military when you're marching, an immediate abrupt left turn and starts t- talking on his cell phone yet again. He looks back over his shoulder at me, and he goes, "Oh, one of Cheney's guys tried to say hi to me." And I said, "Actually, <laughs> actually," and this is why he's still a senator. I said, "Actually, senator, 
uh, I, I'm in the military and uh, you just lost my vote. Although I was never going to vote for him, I just wanted to make prove a point. I said, well, you just lost my vote. And, and just to prove that you never know who, who, who somebody you're talking to or talking about is. Uh, you know, and of course, I am what uh, was a, a voter at the time. So, you know, mm-hmm. but you never know who somebody might be, who you might be able to sway to your side. Um, but he's like, one of Cheney's guys tried to say hi to me. And I'm like, what a what an a-hole. Tells me a little bit every, everything that I need to know about this guy behind, behind the scenes, if you will. I mean, it's, it's how you how you treat somebody behind the scenes, not when the cameras are rolling. That really counts with me. And I, and I, I saw right there the type of person this guy was, a little arrogant, uh, uh, you know, Tall, tall, arrogant guy, but, uh, you know, an arrogant mm-hmm. nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and kind of uh, kind of like Hillary Clinton and, uh, you know, the Clinton administration. The fact is, many of these people uh, detested the military. Right. Uh, you know, the, the more liberal elements of it. And the thing is, they've got to understand one thing. You're doing your job. That's all you're there for is to do your job. Right. The best way that you possibly can. When I was in the service, I did the same thing. They told me, uh, you know, here's what you uh, need to take care of. I spent most of my two years actually uh, wearing civilian clothes. Most of the military military people didn't even know I was in the military. In fact, I had a a captain that I was uh, teaching architecture to who had a master's degree in architecture, but had never done anything, uh, you know, actually done any physical work as an architect. Right. And, and um, when I got out, I had to uh, uh, get a haircut and wear my uniform to muster out. And uh, he blew, blew him away. He had no idea that I was in the service and it kind of pissed him off because uh, I was a non-com and he's calling you service. I was his boss. I was his boss, but I was a (laughs) non-com. So anyway, it's a a funny story. Um, All right. So now what we're talking about, let's, uh, let's get into the, um, let's get into the weeds of the swamp in DC and how the structure of you know the the political influence the the special interest groups all that because even though you were in a very specialized uh, field and specialized area you spend that much time out there you know exactly how this whole process works and I mean special interests were through the roof when I was there in the early seventies I can imagine what it's like now. Right. Absolutely. Well, man, I, I did hang out with a lot of political types. People work on the Hill. People worked in the different administrations and uh, have different experience with different presidents. So, And, of course, I, I was a member of the National Republican Club on Capitol Hill. So I was up there on a regular basis, uh, you know, hobnobbing with, with uh, you know, different members of Congress. Uh, Leader Boehner, before he became Speaker, he would be there on a regular. So, you know, hobnobbing with those folks, you know, wearing nice suits. And uh, they don't know who you are. They just think, oh, he's, he's, from, he's from the White House. So they think, you know that you're somebody important, whether whether you are or not. They they say, oh, White House. Hey, let's talk to this guy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I I did get a hobnob with some folks like that, and a lot of a lot of staff folks. So I got to see a lot of that, uh, and of course, experienced a lot of things from being invited to different events and you know participating in that way outside of my my official work. Uh, so got to see quite a bit of stuff, and of course, I actually was dating a girl who worked for um, Dick Durbin briefly. And, and this was whenever whenever Obama was coming into the Senate, she was helping draft the letter to welcome him. 
And I helped work on the letter welcoming to the White House. She's like, would you read that, proofread that for me? I was like, yeah, change this, change this. Uh, you know, but other than that, I, that, that would be a nice letter to send to him. You know, this, so I helped draft the letter for Dick Durbin, somebody who I, you know, I'd never met. Of course, I had no idea about until around that time whenever I realized what his, what his politics were. And I was like, well, I don't think I would like this guy, but I like the girl. You know what I mean? So it's like, the girl's <laughs> nice. Why is she working for him? You know, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I got to see a little bit, of, you know, behind the scenes, and of course, connected with a lot of people with through through different uh, think tanks, uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, Heritage Foundation, uh, and others like that. You know, got to got to connect with uh, people and listen to what they had to say. America's for Tax Reform. Uh, went to the Wednesday meeting a few times since retiring, and had actually spoken at it, uh, which is Grover Norquist's uh, America's for Tax Reform. And of course, see, being connected with a lot of behind the scenes staff or people who've been chief of staff or you know this congressman, that senator, whatever, and becoming good friends with a lot of them. So hearing what they had to say and discuss us and you know becoming friends with like i said members of congress as well uh you know you get a you get a kind of a good understanding of what really goes on because you've got a lot of good people that want to do the right things but there's this apparatus that's in place and maybe it's just the nature of the beast if you will like some people will say it's just the nature of, the, of things in washington the machine politics and how it kind of works and whether you go there for the right reasons or not a lot of times you know you, you the machine kind of chews you up spits you out it's like you're either you either you get on board with the, the machine the way the way that it's heading uh, or they're going to oust you and look for somebody else like you talked about and of course that does kind of go on and unless you become a, a member that's truly ensconced that they that they really can't get rid of you really can't speak up as a junior junior member of the house or the senate uh, until you get a lot of seniority behind you uh, otherwise and nobody's going to listen to what you have to say then they're going to start fundraising against you and, and, and oust you from your different committees so people have to be very careful so it, the nature of the beast it, it really works against the american people in the Run, I think. Well, I think that's true. And I have a, a good friend who is a congressman from Montana, uh, Matt Rosendale, and uh, he's part of the uh, American Freedom Caucus group, uh, the, the 21 uh, congressmen that, uh, right. and, and frankly, they're doing everything in their power right now to get them off committees, to get rid of them, because right. uh, they're representing the American people. Right. Well, what 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 do they do? They start the character assassination, right? Oh, they're radical. Oh, I don't think there's anything radical about the Constitution. You know, it spells out the basic freedoms that we, we all enjoy, and it basically limits our government from doing uh, things that they shouldn't be doing. Of course, uh, you know, in, in recent memory, that, that's certainly not stopped the, the, the federal government. Of course, you have people that are on the Freedom Caucus, and then there are others up there that are trying to do the right thing and, and actually you know, live up to their oaths of office, important to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, wherever they may be, whether they're inside the House, the Senate, or, or, or what, uh, which is the, the oath you take. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with the Constitution. Everybody who joins the military, whether you're an officer or enlisted, and now there's the, the, the oaths are slightly different, mind you, but you're still swearing an oath to the Constitution to support and defend that document, regardless of whether you're a private in the Army, uh, uh, you know, an incident in the Navy, or you're president of the United States. You swear an, a similar oath to, this, to that Constitution. So there's nothing radical about our founding document that limits our government and what it can and cannot do to us, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, <clears throat> certainly when you're talking about... Uh, the the uh, the swamp and the special interests that are uh, in in charge of uh, the money that has become a huge huge influencer 
in the district of criminals. It's all about the money anymore. And I, yeah. you know, we've got I, I, Steve Daines, Senator Steve Daines from the state of Montana. Uh, I've, I've watched Steve since he was a kid. I knew his father. Uh, I have known Steve since before he ever thought about running for office. And I'm telling you, he is a changed person now as a result of having been in the District of Criminals long mm -hmm. enough to uh, change his personality. Right now, and I'm just going to say this, I'm going to say it on air, uh, he is trying to influence who becomes the next senator uh, from the state of Montana over John Tester. And they put uh, millions of dollars between him and the governor of Montana, who mm -hmm. both of them I know very well on a first-name basis. Uh, they are sinking millions of dollars into a campaign for their hand-picked candidate for senator. And uh, those of us who are on central committees all over the state of Montana for the Republican Party, they didn't even uh, contact us to ask us what we thought about yeah, their yeah. hand-picked candidate. Yeah, we call them executive committees here in Tennessee. In fact, I'm on the uh, my, my, my home county, Sullivan County. I'm on the executive committee here in Sullivan County. Um, and we, of course, every two years we do what I call a reorg, where you elect the, the the new chair, the new members, and so forth. Right, so right. yeah, so I, I'm I'm, uh, I'm on a similar committee here in the, my home state in Tennessee for sure. But yeah, I, I, here's what I would like to see: you know, stay out of a primary race for sure, unless there's a unless there's just really god awful candidate that doesn't need to be running uh, that needs to be exposed. You know, then then alert the people to that. But other than that, let the people decide and, and, and leave it alone. Uh, because you think about it, it costs millions upon millions of dollars because of interference of outside you know, money or whatever uh, for somebody to run for office. Even at, at, at a, you know, a, a local level, it's, it's fairly expensive. So everyday people that are supposed to be represented in a state capital or Washington, uh, you know, are not going to be represented by somebody that, that has similar background as them because of the, how much money it actually costs to run for office, period, even mm -hmm. in a primary. Well, yeah, and, and actually the, our state platform, the Republican state platform in Montana, which incidentally I have worked on uh, many, many times, I've been part of the drafting of that platform, uh, says very specifically that uh, that the party stays out of primary elections and doesn't throw influence yep. in primary elections uh, between individual candidates. It's after the primaries that they get involved. And what we're talking about, and I'm, I'm going to say this again on air, uh, the Millionaires Club, because mm -hmm. uh, Greg Gianforte, who is our governor, is a... Uh, very possibly a billionaire, certainly a millionaire, because of the development of a software company that he sold and made uh, close to a billion dollars, if not a billion. And uh, Steve Daines, who was one of his right-hand men, who is also a very uh, wealthy man, are picking our candidate for U.S. Senator, and he happens to be a multimillionaire that got that way by government contracts. Mm, now, uh, if we're going to pick a candidate, I would certainly think that the candidate we pick shouldn't be 96% uh, or 97% beholden to the federal government for his paycheck. Right. No, that's for sure. 
And and we've got, well, Matt Rosendale, he's our congressman from uh, eastern Montana. Uh, Matt has indicated he wanted to run for that Senate seat uh, for the last two years. And right. uh, why are they trying to pick somebody to put in that position to force him out of the opportunity to do that? Matt, incidentally, has 100% uh, constitutional approving uh, approval rating by the New American magazine. Well, uh, that, that's that's probably the problem right there. How dare you stand up the Constitution 100% of the time? How dare you, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, okay, well, let's keep going. You, you've you got such a fascinating story. Uh, do you have any more about, uh, uh, first of all, uh, Pres uh, president or uh, resident, as I refer to him, uh, oh, Biden. Well, I, I don't refer to him as that. I, I refer to him as the usurper in chief. I don't I don't think that now. Now, now, let's say he was elected, you know, outright for sure. But there is so much that went on during that, that, that 2020 election that people have raised so many quite good questions about that they're immediately shut down, they're deplatformed, you know, they're, they're, they're shadow banned on different platforms, social media, uh, you know, social, and of course the mainstream media won't even, won't even discuss it, even in, in a rational manner of people of general concerns. So whenever, whenever you want to shut people down, to me, there's more behind the door that's going on. You know, it's, it's Oz behind the curtain. We're telling you not to pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. Whenever he's the, in fact, the guy telling you not to pay attention to him, you know, the person who's really pulling the levers, it's like, I just want to expose the person behind the, the scenes pulling the levers, and they don't want that to happen. And it's like, let's just discuss all the the the, the things that went on in the different states, you know, that didn't add up, that didn't make sense, that somehow led to Biden of all people receiving more votes than anybody who ever ran for president in history. Uh, a man who couldn't string two sentences together. He never who never went to any rally, who, who hung out in his basement for uh, basically two years campaigning, uh, to all of a sudden, here's this savior of the, the republic, uh, our next president. Whenever things were actually going fairly well for us, regardless if you don't like President Trump's tweets or whatever, that's fine. You don't like the way he, the way he says things or what he says about a few people, that, that's fine. You don't have to like the way he says things. But the, the things were going fairly well in our mm -hmm. country. We were getting extricated from all these external wars that we didn't need to be in. That was breaking the national bank, thirty-four trillion in debt now. Uh, you know, and all of a sudden the economy was going fairly well. People were getting jobs. Uh, crime rate was going down. People weren't crossing the border illegally. Uh, but legal immigration was at the same level as it had always been, or probably a little bit higher, because people going through the front door were getting preferential treatment, which is the right way to doing business. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so things were going the way they should have been going. Uh, people were being promoted within our government based on merit, not not based on you know skin pigmentation or uh, some other not thing that, that that doesn't make up the person's uh, character. You know, MLK said the content of her character, not the color of her skin. Now nowadays that doesn't mean anything. It's the color of your skin first. It's all these other woke stuff that that people want to uh, you know bring up. Whether what your character is besides the point. You know, so somebody that wants to speak the truth, the truth to power. They're going to be shut down. They're going to be deplatformed and destroyed. And like you said, the, the, this congressman who wants to run for the Senate, maybe behind the scenes, especially, he's like saying, we shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing that. We need to be focused mm -hmm. on X, Y, and Z. And the powers that be are saying, no, we want you to focus on X, Y, and Z, because that's what we want before the American people, that we want we want our, our agenda before anybody else. Uh, and maybe he's trying to expose that, or, or maybe he's running counter to that, and that's why they're against him.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's talk about globalism. You, you know, you've got to have some pretty interesting perspectives on how so many of our national leaders, including the ones who are not elected, but who are appointed uh, to administrative positions, uh, right. how, how they're promoting us moving away from a constitutional republic and moving into a global technocracy that just a handful of people control. Right, well, a handful of people with, with uh, the right type of bank account, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, th you think about this, um, you know, I understand a global economy. You know, we're interconnected. We want to buy goods and services from other places around the world. That, that's mm -hmm. fine for me. Not a problem. If you want to buy mm -hmm. something from from India, China, or South America, or wherever, that's that's your that's your right as a free person, whether you're an American citizen or not. That, I think that's, that's right. the way that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't be giving up our sovereignty to to rule ourselves here at home. Uh, no more than my, my local government should be saying, okay. We'll allow the state to decide everything. And then the state shouldn't be like, well, we'll just allow the federal government to push their agenda around. Well, then the federal government's going to say, well, what? Let's just allow some global cabal to run everything, you know, because that's where all the money's at anyway. Uh, we should never be doing that. We should never be surrendering our freedom our, our, and our sovereignty for sure, whether it's as a, a free citizen uh, or whether it's as a nation or, or a state for that matter. You know, no more than Montana should tell Tennessee what to do and Tennessee shouldn't be telling North Carolina what to do. Uh, as long as those things are, you know, we're competing against one another in a, in a, in a fair playing field, I, I, I don't I don't think nobody should be telling anybody else what to do for sure. And of course, uh, there are those global elites who, who are, who do think that they're better than you and I and think that they'll, they can run our lives better than we can uh, whenever they can't even run their own lives, uh, you know, outside of cheating people behind the scenes uh, out of a few dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, um, what you're, uh, what you're discussing in the, the, uh, the uniparty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, right. That's because that has changed. I mean, uh, you know, in, in times past, there were actually two uh, different political parties, but, we, we've gotten to the point, and I use this analogy, and I, I get a lot of laughs out of it, but it's true. Um, we're, we're heading toward socialism. Uh, the Democrats are like they're in a car driving 120 miles an hour, got their foot to the floor, uh, speeding toward a one-world so socialist government at top speed. And uh, the Republican Party are in the car behind them, but they're trying to obey the speed limit. Uh, yeah. But they're doing going the same place, and yeah. you know we need a true difference. We need a uh, uh, despera, as it were, in uh, political thinking, so that we quit doing the same thing and allowing uh, a a political class to drive us into a a situation that is uh, irre irreparable in time. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they're they're going to the, the same place, and it's just one's going there speeding, and one go, is going there uh, follow, follow the speed limit. You're mm -hmm. you're right, and of course, anybody who who says, "Hey, maybe we should exit right here and 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 and, and stop at the rest stop and t discuss this," or they're thrown out of the car, you know, and mm -hmm. the car continues on down the road, you know, and that's the way it goes. And like you talked about 
uh, you know, your house member trying to run for the Senate. I think they're trying to drop him off at the, the next exit and say sayonara because you're, you're going against us here. You know, you're trying to make us make us go a different way. But, you know, uh, and that's kind of, kind of the analogy works. I think that's the way it is. You know, if you stand up and speak, you know, like I said, truth to power and you're speaking facts and you want to talk about, you know, standing up for the people in, in your home state or your home district, uh, you know, how dare you do that? Uh, over what our agenda is now. If if your platform supports our agenda, then hey, we, we may not go against you so hard. Um, but if you sign on to our agenda, well, guess what? You're going to get all the money and all the funding in the world. But the next thing you know, you're a changed person. All of a sudden, you know, you're no longer Bill or Bob or whatever. You know, you, you're you're Congressman this or Senator that, and you have to have uh, 20 people between you and the people you're you, you're supposed to represent. And I've seen that, uh, you know knowing a number of members of, of the House and Senate across the country. And of course, even, even in, in state legislatures, you know, people that, you know, I, I used to associate with who've gotten elected to higher offices. And all of a sudden it's like they have that standoffness uh, that they can't yeah. have that discussion with you anymore, that they, they would even try to pawn you off to, uh, to their staff outside of a, a cordial hello in the hallway. Uh, you know, so you can see the, the change in a lot of people. I mean, I've served with people who who gotten elected to the the, the House of Representatives uh, uh, in Washington, and all of a sudden, you know, you see them on the hallway up there if you're going up there for for an official event or whatever, and you 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 say hey to them, and you know, it's it's like oh hey, and it's like a little handshake, and it's like. Well, I gotta go. My, my staffer <laughs> will talk to you, and it's uh, it's like you know we used to talk all the time and hang out. We used to smoke cigars together, and it's like now you can't you know, say hey to an old friend, you know. And and you see that you see a, a big difference for sure. Yeah, they they uh, they love to uh, put labels on people, and uh, you're right. I mean they they act like you're a totally different uh, different person. No, uh, yeah. they when they need you though. Guess what? They're there right. uh, holding their hand out. And I've seen that at the state level right. a lot. And I, of course, it's only amplified at the national level. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been up there, you know, you're, you're, you're lobbying Congress for veterans issues and things like that. They'll take that photo with you whenever you're wearing that 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 veterans uh, organizational cap or your a shirt or something like that. They have no problem taking that photo with you because they want to use that for, to their advantage. Uh, but if you go up there in a suit, you know, maybe you're lobbying for something else, uh, that's something that's a little controversial than the, the powers that be behind the scene wants. All of a sudden, you, you can't get a meeting. It's like, oh, well, the, the first person that, the, that, that mans the door is going to be the stalwart. Oh, I'll take your card. And um, that's about that's about as far as you're going to get at that point. But you show up wearing that veterans cap or whatever. Oh, hey, they'll, they'll take that photo with you. They'll go back. You, you'll go back into their office and. And they'll sit down and be chummy with you. And of course, as soon as you want to switch, uh, you know, maybe take that cap off and discuss something else, uh, that staffer is ready to pull that congressman or, or senator around the office, and they have another important meeting to get, run to. All of a sudden, you know, so you get yeah. your foot in the you get your foot in the door, uh, you know, under one set of circumstances, but all of a sudden you you try to switch it. Oh, never never mind. We we've got to go to a meeting. You, you need to leave the office. Uh, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, in fact, a lot of them have a button under their. Uh, desk drawer that they can push that right. uh, staff knows automatically it's time to bang on the door and say, uh, Congressman, you've got a meeting. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 You've got that that. Yeah, that important thing that's uh, not on your schedule, but oh, well, mm -hmm. sorry. And of course, once you leave the office or, or they may they may leave and go over to the chief of staff's office and hide out for a few minutes until until you clear the hallway, you know, and then, of course, then they go back to doing whatever they were doing. It's like they never even left their suite of offices at all, but it, they, they made it seem as if they had to rush off somewhere. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm Todd. I'm saving kind of the the best for last because I know you work fairly closely with the uh, Trump administration in various ways. I want to hear about your time around uh, the Trump administration, and I want to hear your uh, ideas and opinions because uh, I think Donald Trump was the first populist president that we've had in a very long time. And I also think that's why the uh, establishment Republican Party hated him so bad. Right. And still do. I mean, you know, they're, if they think they can raise money off of them, I can't tell you. I'd probably get, oh, hell, 50 uh, big uh, emails a day, not uh, oh. <laughs> 20 big uh, letters a day. You yeah. know, support the Republican National uh, Senatorial Republican Committee and all this crap. And I, uh, they, they always use Trump and then mm-hmm. the second that he was president, they couldn't knock his feet out from under him quick enough. Well, let's think about this. Uh, in Nikki Haley, right? There's mm-hmm. one, Ron, Ron DeSantis, who loved those coattails. Because think about it, Ron DeSantis, whenever he was running for governor, was floundering. Uh, and then who came in? Who, uh, yeah, president Trump swoops in on Air Force One, does some stumping for him, does some fundraising. Next thing you know, those poll numbers are going up. And all of a sudden, he's elected, uh, you know, governor of Florida, or, or else that, that Democrat was running against him would probably maybe have won. Uh, but Trump went in there and salvaged that campaign and, and put him over the top. Uh, and then all of a sudden, to kind of switch gears and say, "Oh well, everybody's talking about me." Well, everybody was talking about you, uh, Governor DeSantis, because of Trump's spotlight that was shown upon you. Uh, but it, they they weren't trying to tell you that, hey, it's your time to run. And, and all of a sudden, when President Trump said he's going to run. Why did he all of a sudden say, well, it's a good idea for me to run, too? It's like you wouldn't be in a position to be even thought about as running for president had it not been for him. It's like, so why, why did you all of a sudden think it was your, your time to run? Uh, you know, you should have probably st- stood up, sit off on the side and kind of waited. But people have no problem w- once you're kind of out of the way that, you know, well, his coattails got me to this point. Let me go ahead and keep going, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have a little bit of respect for the guy who got you there? And then, you know, if, if he decides to step out of the way, then, you know, then it's your time to, to run. But don't don't sit there and, and run against the guy who got you there, you know, because then you see that you think about this. I, I go back to like high school or middle school and uh, you talk about people, people you kind of grew up with, you know, that, that used to sleep over at your house. People that used to kind of wet the bed or cry for their mommy or whatever. Now, now all of a sudden it's like middle school rolls around a couple of the cool kids. They want to hang out with a couple of the cool kids and they, they've been accepted to the cool kid clan, if you will. And all of a sudden they don't know you from Adam. And it's like, we were best friends up until th- just, just this year. And all of a sudden you don't want to know me, you know, and it's kind of mm-hmm. like that in politics in a lot of ways, you know, it's like, well, I don't need you anymore. I rode your coattails as far as it, 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 they'll take me. And, and you know, mm-hmm. now I'm in the cool kid class in seventh grade. I don't need your coattails anymore. So I kind of view politics as that way because it's that petty in a lot of ways for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's even worse. Um, I think in, in Washington, DC, uh, even worse than uh, in states, because states have <laughs> yeah. a certain level of uh, they're they're still small enough, and your voters are close enough to you that uh, you can't quite get away with as much at the state level as you can at the national level. And uh, but anyway, let's let's uh, let's talk about Donald Trump because you uh, you really did uh, 
work with his administration, and and I'd I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so as, like I said, I was a White House staff associate, so or or, or quote advanced associate. So I did advanced work for President Trump and and the Vice President. Uh, so in other words, whenever they were going, let's say they were coming out to Montana, uh, and we, we would go there at least five, six, seven days in advance. Uh, and of course, you'd have a contingent of Secret Service, a uh, contingent of uh, White House uh, communications uh, folks, which is where I used to work, uh, would come out. And of course, other White House military office apparatus individuals would come as well. Uh, and, and basically, the logistics of where the president's going to land, uh, the motorcade, where he's going to walk, who he's going to meet, and, and then, of course... All, all the nice uh, things, that the, the staging, all the lighting, all that good stuff. You kind of work all of that, if you will, and to make make him look really good once he arrives. So he has to do nothing but give the speech and shake a few hands and go where you tell him to walk to. That kind of because that's kind of what we did as 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 a staff associates. Uh, it's kind of lead, lead him around to all the different people and make sure that. Things are staged. People are there where they need to be. Let's say it could be meeting uh, the, 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 the the congressional delegation. Well, let's have them staged over here. Let's have your governor over here, and this is how they're going to how they're going to walk and how they're going to meet up with one another and meet meet with uh, one another. Uh, but so you kind of work all those things out before before the fact. So that's kind of what we did. Of course, you get up close and personal. You're in the bubble, and of course, a lot of times, depending on your position, you're right next to the principal, if you will, a principal meeting uh, Trump or, or or Vice President Pence. I mean, you're you're right there, hand in glove, if you will, in a lot of respects. And of course, you're helping direct the staff to different places as well. So you get up close and personal, and you have those personal conversations with them. And I, I remember doing an, a bus tour with President or Vice President Pence from uh, the Pittsburgh area going to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, and of course, we arrive in Hershey, and of course, Trump's there going to do a big rally. And so I'm standing outside of, of Trump's hold room. This is uh, backstage there and uh, at the, uh, the Hershey Arena, uh, which is also a hockey basketball arena as well. And it's, it's, it's packed full for sure. And this is during the re-election time frame. And I'm talking to one of the, one of the physicians to the, the president, and I uh, said, uh, hey, I don't have a, a pack of M&Ms with President Trump's signature on it, the presidential M&Ms. And he's like, he finishes the 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 box, and he's like, oh well, here you go. He gives me an empty box, and President Trump's he hearing him giving me this empty box, and he comes out with three or four boxes of M and M's and some Hershey's Kisses. He's like, don't take his trash. He's like, you give me that, and he, he threw it away. He comes back out with the, the M and M's and Hershey's Kisses. He's like, here, you take these. He's like, those are yours. He's like, put those away. Now now you have them with my signature on it. So that was Donald Trump behind the scenes, and that told me a lot about who this person is. He has a sense of humor, and at the same time. He has no problem talking to the the, the everyday guy, if you will, because you know he, I, I could have been anybody else outside having that conversation. Uh, what, he, he didn't come up to me because I had a hard pen on, and he knew he he, he knew that he could trust me. Uh, he came up to me because he didn't want me to take somebody else's trash. He's like, here, have the real thing uh, unopened, and he knew I'd probably give a few of those away uh, and people and have a good story behind it. You know, whenever I got back mm -hmm. home to Tennessee, so that was Donald Trump behind the scenes to me. Um, kind of interesting guy, and of course. You know, it's a different guy that you see on stage, if you will, doing a rally than you do behind the scenes. And uh, he came here to my hometown here in Northeast Tennessee, actually Johnson City, Tennessee, which is a 20 minute drive away. And I was the staff lead for the actual rally itself. And I'm standing in the offstage announce area just before he goes on stage. And he's just having a, a normal conversation, kind of like, you know, you and I would probably have, we were standing in the same room together. Uh, and then all of a sudden we're getting ready to go. He's getting ready to go on stage. He's like, he looks in the, the mirror, he fixes that big red tie, 
buttons his button and he goes all right well time to time to put on the act if you will and i was like well what what, what do you mean he said he's like he's like well you go out there he's like you go out there and you give the speech he's like you gotta you gotta put on the act a little bit he's like he's like he's like i'm not saying i'm not saying what i believe in he's like but at the same time you, you do have to play the crowd a little bit and you got to work work the work the media you got to rib the media here and there he's like but you know in a lot of ways, he's like a, a, a political speech is also an act in a lot of ways. And anybody, anybody at any level who's given a political speech that really means something has put on that act, if you will. John Kennedy, he used to give great speeches, but he was also acting, playing to the crowd in, in a certain way. So he's like, you know, in a, he said, in a lot of ways, this is like theater. And I said, oh, I got you. So that, again, that's another story to tell me uh, kind of the type of person this guy is. He understands what's going on. He understands the issues, but he understands how to uh, present it to the masses, which is why so many people who never participated in politics are now participating in politics, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, you uh, and, and, and the Thumper, my producer Thumper is on uh, right. this call, and he said, uh, you may know a buddy of his who uh, worked at the White House detail, uh, Steve Morris. I don't know if you uh, know uh, offhand, off, off, Offhand, I'm not sure. I do know some people who are last name Morris, uh, but I'm not sure that I know him for for certain. But but I probably do. Maybe maybe, and it's just I don't I don't I don't recognize the the name offhand. So mm -hmm. well, uh, his uh, his his dad was uh, uh, part of. Uh, some one of the groups and uh he also uh he and i were stationed together in vq1 out in guam and i went to our uh reunion last year in reno and ran into him and he was uh after he left the squadron uh he went and uh worked uh presidential details and uh i heard a lot of the same stories <laughs> Right, you're talking about here. <laughs> right. Well, well that's kind of nice. Uh, Guam. I actually did a, 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 an advance for uh, Mike Pence out in Guam out there at the air base there, and uh, this was around Thanksgiving time frame. He had done a big uh, a Asian tour, uh, Japan, uh, Australia. I think a couple other places there, um, Singapore. I can't remember where all he went to, but ours was basically the last stop where he stopped, and, and, and it was a refuel stop, and then. He did. He did the uh, uh, turkey dinner there with everybody and shook their hands and all that. And then the chow hall, which was kind of nice. And of course, uh, the last duty station I had was in Hawaii. We had an actual battalion there in, in Guam. So I, I've been to Guam, uh, I think, three or four times over my career. And of course, one time with Mike Pence, which is kind of interesting. Fun place. Um, yeah, fun place. And it, it's kind of a uh, the the people from Japan who who have money go to Hawaii, but the the, the poor people that's what they say. The, the people with money, the Japanese people with money, they say, "Oh, the poor Japanese, they go to Guam. That's their that's their poor Hawaii." And I'm like, oh, yeah. "This is a nice this is a nice place because it's not commercialized. Like you go to Hawaii, mm -hmm. Hawaii you go to Honolulu, commercialized. You can't even enjoy the place. And it's like uh, you go to Guam, you can enjoy the the, the weather and enjoy the the scenery and all the stuff that they have to offer without all the commercialization and overpriced stuff. They have all the mm -hmm. same things." Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah uh just to kind of give you a time frame uh i know steve was on the uh, detail when uh the uh hillary telephone and bill's eye uh came together oh and <laughs> <laughs> she threw the tell uh, threw a telephone at him you know yeah yeah oh yeah so yeah that but i'll, I'll tell you some stories because whenever i served there uh i served there with guys who had actually been at the at the agency um uh, whenever Hillary and Bill were in office, and they, they told me a lot of stories. And one story I, I heard from a, a reliable person, 
Uh, it was an, a chief petty officer. And mind you, he had been uh, a, a little junior at this, uh, but when it, during the Clinton era, of course, by the time uh, the Bush Cheney era was there, whenever I was there, uh, he had been a, I think, a chief petty officer, maybe even a senior chief petty officer by this point. And he said that they went into uh, the, the Bill Clinton was going down to the to the ballroom to do a speech or whatever, and he mentioned to one of the agents, "Hey, can somebody check the the phone in the sitting room? Uh, there's some issues there." And he said, "Also check the one in the bedroom." He said, "The connection's bad for some reason." I was having a conversation. Can you check it? Uh, no problem, sir. And then the agent calls down and uh, you know tells us the security room, "Hey, can somebody send a walk a guy? What else communication needs to wrap up? Check check the phones. Uh, you know, in the suite they're having some issues. So no no problem, sir. Then all of a sudden." Couple of walking guys, they go up there. That's the job. They go into the, the the suite. Of course, they're clear to go in, no problem. And they're in there fixing the phones, this and that. And all of a sudden, Hillary had yet to leave the suite to go do an event she was going to go do. She comes, or, or she had left and came back, and she sees these guys in this in the room, standing next to some of her nice, expensive shoes. I don't know what the heck she was wearing back then. And then all of a sudden, she's like excuse me, excuse me, who are you? And they tell her, sir or ma'am, she goes, ma'am, uh, you were White House Communications <laughs> Agency guys, and uh, you know we're here to, to fix the phone. The president said that he's having some issues. Basically, it was an easy fix, uh, whatever it was. It was a connection, uh, one of the RJ15 uh, or 45, whatever whatever the connection is. What was bad, they, they changed it out, not a problem. And of course, these, these phones travel around the world, so obviously they're going to go bad at some point. But they, a quick fix or whatever, and she's like, do not stand next to those shoes. They cost more than your paycheck. And this is who she was. Mm-hmm. And of course, they, they said, no, no problem, ma'am. I, I won't step on your shoes. We're, we're almost done. They fin- they finished up what they were doing. And she's like, well, I need you to hurry. Get the hell out of here. And then she picks up the very expensive shoe that she was just talking about. And she throws it at them, not like at their face, but throws it at their feet as they're walking out. And the guy was thinking like, Hell, I could have killed her. Nobody would have would have known. I could have made it look like an accident. Uh, but and, and they made a joke like, <laughs> if, if, the, if the shoe was so expensive, why would you throw it at me? Like you know, like this is what they're thinking. Like you know, they made it. She made a whole deal about her this, this pair of shoes. Uh, that they they were they were like five feet away from it. By the way, the shoes were like five feet away. So why make a whole thing about the shoes? Then throw them at me if, if they're so such, such an expensive and important pair of shoes. There, it made no sense. Mm-hmm. This is Hillary well, Clinton, though. Yeah, that was Hillary Clinton, and uh, <laughs> boy, I'll tell you what, we we uh, dodged a bullet in 2016. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I say this: I said, you, you think Obama was bad? Think about how Hillary Clinton would have been. You know, she was there because she was entitled to be there. She was the heir apparent, the next in line, the this, the that. It's like Hillary. First off, you should have never been elected to the Senate in New York. Of course, they're 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 known for electing carpetbaggers. You know. Uh, and uh, Bob Bob Kennedy or uh, Robert Kennedy, he went there and and, and was elected uh, to the Senate, uh, you know. But but he at least had some connection to the state. And at the same time, Robert Kennedy had real substance to himself anyway. So mm-hmm. regardless of the fact that he carpetbagged there, he had real substance to himself uh, outside of what Hillary Clinton had. Hillary had no no substance to herself other than the fact I should be the one who's president. And that's really the only reason she wanted to be president. It's me, 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 I, 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 not what can I do for other people, which is our RFK. I think he had that mentality. What can I do to help other people? I think that was for real. Yeah, I think so too. I, I love it. You uh, use the term carpetbagger. Uh, if anybody <laughs> understood carpetbaggers, it was uh, Tennessee and uh, Alabama and Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. 
anyway, um, okay, let's get to 2016. Let's uh, let's move forward. Um, did you have how, what were you doing when uh, Trump decided to uh, run for the presidency? And I'd love your perspective on. Uh, you know, different uh, different happenings, different things that were going on. I mean, he he was a real threat to the new world order. And uh, I'm I'm going to give you. We've got basically a half hour. I really want to know more about uh, Donald Trump as a human being uh, and your perspective of how he was uh, uh, nearly assassinated politically, and I know they made a number of attempts, uh, but according to uh, some people I know who uh, say that, you know, they, they're pretty well connected, that he's had multiple attempts on his life uh, that have been uh, thwarted. And uh, I'd, I'd like to get a little bit more from you about just in general. Well, yeah, I, I honestly, I couldn't tell. I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure he's had people try to do things that have been thwarted, but I, I don't know of anything directly that, you know, that I could re expound upon, honestly. I, I don't don't know anything for sure. Like in 2016, like I said, whenever he ran for office, I was still in the Army until I retired. Uh, but as, as soon as I retired, I had people who would worked on the campaign that said, hey, would you want to go work on the inaugural committee? And I said, sure. So I went and worked on the inaugural committee. Then they're like, hey, would you want to come work in the administration? And at that point, I was kind of working on you know, a run for Congress myself in 2018, which I did. Uh, to try to get my name out there, maybe, maybe perhaps, you know, if, if at all possible, if it's an open election, uh, maybe, maybe squeak in there. Uh, so I decided not to go work full time in the administration, but they said, would you want to be a staff associate? I said, sure. So that's how I kind of got my foot in the door with the staff associate, with the connections I had made with the, during the Bush-Cheney administration. Uh, but so, you know, I, I wasn't really in close early on anyway. And of course, mm -hmm. I, I had done a number of events, um, you know, over the course of the next few years, got invited to, I, I did enough work to get invited to the Christmas parties at the White House and then the, the Naval Observatory with the vice president a few times. Uh, but, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, closely on a daily basis uh, in, inside the inside, if you will. But I, I, do, I do know a lot of the guys who were. And I never heard anything about an assassination attempt directly. Of course, I'm sure every president's had some sort of attempt or another, uh, going back probably to the beginning of of, of the republic, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's yeah, no, nothing I could expound upon there uh, or okay. add to. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about um, the presidency, and you know, Donald Trump. You, you're right; he did a lot of things uh, great for this country. Uh, 2017, my wife and I bought a house south of Tucson in Vail, Arizona for our, um, we're, we're snowbirds, uh, so that we could go to Arizona. We've got a ranch in Montana mm -hmm. and uh, go to Arizona in the winter. In 2017, we bought that because we knew that Trump had a, uh, a, a plan in place on how to control all the Ill illegal immigration. And uh, we sold our place down there the summer before last because it was becoming a nightmare down there. The, the uh, border was completely wide open. The drug cartels were moving into Tucson. Uh, they, uh, we were surrounded by BLM land on three sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they were using that to uh, transport um, you know, human trafficking and transporting drugs and all the rest. 
And it had just become so incredibly different in a matter of two years that we decided we've got to get out of here. Right. And so we did. And I sadly, because it was a beautiful home, uh, very nice area, beautiful home. We, we loved it, but we knew that it wasn't going to uh, remain safe. Now, uh, there was a major shooting and three or four people were killed uh, within about a half a mile of where our house was. So it has degenerated that way. I guess my, my point is, is with uh, Donald Trump as president, things were so much better in so many ways and nationally, internationally, uh, politically, and now they've gone exactly the opposite way. I, I really want to get into that a little bit. Would you mind? Sure, absolutely. And I remember in 2019, I went down, uh, and this was after my 2018 congressional run. And, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, you'll you'll, you'll get 4,000 or 5,000 votes at most. And then, you know, I got 16,000 plus. And I, I kind of had set myself up to may, maybe be the ne the next one in line to to run the next next uh, the next term. So I did a, a border tour down in Coast Chiefs County, down in Arizona, with Mark, Mark, uh, Sheriff Mark Daniels and a, and a couple other people down that way. Uh, and, he, and they were explaining to where where they come across the border. And of course, he, he had his sheriff's deputies, and they had he has an actual um, I, I guess a I don't, I don't know what what you want to call it. Let's call it a group or whatever within his sheriff's department that actually goes out and patrols the border. And, uh, you know, he was explaining how, where they come across that, where the federal lands are, where, where the state lands are, and how the, the areas that his his sheriff's department can patrol. And he said there's a lot of times whenever they'll even go over into the federal lands, but then all of a sudden they usually get chased out of there because the federal, you know, the, the, the it's federal to property or whatever. They don't want them in there because it's not their, their job to patrol that type of that, that area. And then he's asking the questions like, if I'm not going to do it, why aren't you guys going to do it? And of course, um, the rules of the, the of the land at that point had, had yet to be changed to where uh, it's it's beneficial to Border Patrol, you know, CBP, and all these other groups uh, to actually go and, and patrol those areas, and of course, put in uh, border walls and so forth, and deny access. And of course, around this time. President Trump was, was building that wall, but he yet obviously had yet to make it through that part of uh, Arizona for sure. Uh, but you know. And now, now you're seeing down in Texas, for example, you have Governor Abbott who says, you know, why, why can't, as a state governor and as a state, why can't we have a control our own sovereignty, especially whenever we're under attack uh, from, from foreign sources, if you will, cartels coming and killing people, drugs hmm. coming in here at an alarming rate, you know, people, the human trafficking, if you will. And never mind the fact that a lot of these are young kids that are being raped, uh, you know, on their journey across the border or being sold into sexual slavery or stuff like that. You know, if, if people are all about, you know, helping and taking care of the kids, you know, then you should be about border security because border security would help stop a lot of that, those problems that, that, that people face. Uh, and at the same time, think about people that come in here illegally. Where do they normally go? They'll go to communities that are more like them, if you will. Uh, you know, so they'll go to immigrant, immigrant communities that are people who just came here legally that are trying to make it in, in this country. All of a sudden, now it's an influx of illegal immigrants and that, that, that undercut people that are here legally, taking jobs that they would have normally have had. Now, all of a sudden, what happens is the, the, the black market economy goes up, uh, crime rate goes up, if you will, all because you didn't secure a border, which was a very simple process that President Trump was showing, actually can actually 
can can help a lot of the problems that we face internal to our country, whether it's, you know, on along the border or, you know, thousands of miles away, like say here in Tennessee, for example. And of course, Sheriff Daniels there, there in Cochise County said, you know, think about this I-40 corridor, you know, you, you, you make it just a few, uh, maybe an hour's drive or so from here, from Cochise County on the border, two hours, you hit I-40. You can go east, you can go west, and you can go right because I forty comes right through Tennessee. He said mm-hmm. within within a couple of days, the drugs that they bring across, the people who are smuggling, can be in the middle of Tennessee and let off, and, and next thing you know, they're destroying communities there, and they actually are. He said so. Border security isn't just controlling people on the border; it's controlling everything within our nation. He said that's why border security is so important and so vital. And and I I, I think the point was right, and of course Trump was was spot on. And I don't understand why Congress doesn't understand that that they want to kind of shut down. Uh, uh, Texas from, from from controlling what comes into their local communities there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, that that comment has been uh, made to be a number of times. In fact, uh, I don't know if you know uh, uh, Christy Hutcherson, but uh, she and Sheriff Mack uh, had a meeting at my house uh, on that very subject. And Christy uh, spent, uh, she's spent the last three years down there uh, monitoring the border because she's uh, women fighting for America is her mm-hmm. group. And okay. they, they've been talking about how, um, you know, all the human trafficking, she showed pictures of the rape trees, uh, the things that are going on there. Uh, and it's gotten just incredibly worse in the last couple, three years right. because of the administration. What do you think about this administration? And then we'll go back to what you thought about the Trump administration. Right. Well, the current administration, you know, they adhere to an ideology that's flawed, destructive, and evil. I truly believe that. And whether or not there's some sort of secret cabal to to destroy America, like some people think, is besides the point. Maybe, maybe there is, but I, I think it. I think it's really to create a situation in this country where people are going to say, "Oh, we have so many problems. The only people that can fix it is the government, the federal government." So people are going to turn over that sovereignty to, well, I, I don't care as long as you fix the problems. Well, next thing you know, you're giving up your basic individual freedom uh, for somebody to fix a problem that should have never been created in the first place. Now, all of a sudden, you give up that individual liberty, if you will, uh, to the federal government that you're never going to get back. So I think maybe in some respects, yes, there is a plan, but wh- whether it's a, 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 you know, people in the, in the back room coming up with, you know, do this, 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 you know, step one, step two, step three, I don't know that it's that detailed, but I think just the, the general idea is to create so many problems that the only people that could step in that's big enough to fix it is, is the government, whether it's the federal government or left-leaning state governments like California, if you will. Like you know, that, Of course, they're not going to solve the problems that we truly face in this country. They're going to throw Band-Aids on it and say, see, look at what I'm doing here. But now I've get, you, you've given over more of your sovereignty. I'm taxing you even more. So now you have less money to go out and do those little things that we, we may not approve of, if you will. Because, uh, you know, think about taxes and taxes. What does that do? That, that that takes money away from you to be able to go out and exercise that basic individual liberty. So now all of a sudden you're beholden to the, the federal government for whether it's a tax break, a tax subsidy, or, or uh, some sort of, a you know, a, a decrease in taxes somewhere so that I can buy fuel to go to work or whatever. So you know, think about all the problems that, you know, 
that the federal government can create, uh, whether it's uh, it means to or not, you know. So and it controls every aspect of our lives. And people that that haven't been awake to politics for decades, uh, hopefully, are coming coming to realize that everything that any government does, anything that any politician does, affects me one way or another, whether directly, indirectly, whether today or sometime down the road. And I'm hoping that people will be uh, crack wise to it and, and and wake up and actually uh, start voting and actually getting behind good candidates like you talked about your congressional member and help get them into office versus somebody, uh, you know, somewhere far off Washington, D.C., picking who's going to be the next senator there in your state. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, um, you know, what you're talking about is so important because you mentioned it early. That's the reason our government is set up the way it is, where mm -hmm. states' rights, individual rights are number one, right. states' rights are number two, and uh, federal government is supposed to be at the bottom of the heap. Yes. And that the reason, and our founders were brilliant in this, they gave individual states the power to create, as long as it fit within the Constitution, the power to create uh, taxing entities and things like that. Uh, but it, it was a competitive process. In that way, if a state got completely off the rails like they have in California and right. Illinois and New York, they could go to Tennessee or Florida or Montana or Texas to get away from the nightmare that was created. That kind of competition is healthy for a country. And uh, what we've seen now is uh, in California, People are fleeing by the millions. I mean, they've lost 15% of their population in yep. the last four years. And it's because, and guess what? It's not the poor 15% they're losing. It's the producers because they're getting overtaxed. Isn't this absolutely why our founders in their wisdom created the situation they did? I think that's correct. And, you know, like states should compete amongst themselves. And of course, uh, whenever you can have a conflict between the two different states, if you will, uh, you know, the the arbiter is the federal government, if you will. Like if, if Tennessee is going to sue, let's say, Montana for whatever reason, uh, you know, who, who's going to decide that? What's going to be federal courts that would decide that? And that's the only real, real thing that the federal government should do, provide for the common defense, conduct diplomacy, be the arbiter between the states whenever there's di uh, disagreements uh, to keep things peaceful. Uh, and other than that, they, they shouldn't be involved in education. They shouldn't be involved in uh, overburdensome taxes and regulations and things of that nature. Uh, outside of, say, so maybe some interstate commerce where in multiple states are involved, yeah, maybe the federal government should, should regulate to some degree. But at the same time, most most of that regulation, most of that legislation should come from within the individual states uh, themselves, for sure. Uh, but other than that, the federal government should be doing the bare minimum of things that the states can't readily do for themselves. And that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way I look. Way I look at it for sure. Well, it's the way I look at it too. Uh, Todd, you and I are on the same page, no doubt. Um, we we watched President Trump being uh, hauled through the court system. We've seen the weaponization of government, and it's happened in a big way uh, since the old Biden administration took power. Um, tell me, uh, you you've seen that weaponization. You see what they're trying to do to the president. 
Um, and what's your opinion of uh, Donald Trump's situation now and how it needs to be resolved and uh, his chances to win the presidency in 2024? He won it in 2020. I don't think there's right. any question. But let's just uh, say that uh, that's water under the under the bridge. Now we've got 2024 and we've got a an election system that's completely off the rails. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's water under the bridge. It may be water that broke the dam, and I, ho I hope not. Hopefully the dam's mm -hmm. repairable. Uh, and, and the only way to repair it is to uh, reelect President Trump. And now what you're seeing is, you know, you've seen a lot of these op-eds, and I've seen several. I saw another one last night. I think The Atlantic published something. If President Trump is, is reelected, he's going to go after the cities and the states that didn't support him and all this stuff. And I'm like, complete nonsense. The same stuff that they said about him in 2016. He, he never did. And now all of a sudden you're, you're saying he's going to do it this time because he has nothing to lose at this point. It's like if he was going to do anything all that you, you said he was going to do, he would have never left office the first time, you know, which is which 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 obviously he said, you know what? I may I, I, I'm I didn't lose the election. He didn't recognize that he lost the election. But constitutionally and I guess legally, he was out of office. So he left office. Mm -hmm. uh, so to say he's going to do any of those things now. Uh, because he has nothing to lose, is is completely asinine. You're trying to scare people into voting for some for somebody or a political party that has no business being in power. And if you look at what's happening under the Biden or old Biden administration, uh, which is really it's a third term of, uh, of Obama, right. I think you you could probably throw the Clintons in there as well and some other people uh, that are that are behind the strings pulling strings. Um, you know, uh, you know, you look at what they've done to this country. Look at what they've done to to the to the world. I mean, think about uh, you know, you, you think about COVID nineteen, if you will. You know, you, you can't blame Donald Trump for that. You got to blame these these globalists, if you will, that went into a lab and and, and created something that ha they had no business of playing with. That all of a sudden, once it got out, it's like, well, how do we control this? And you know, wh whether whether COVID nineteen was a was a was something planned, a pandemic, or whether it was just by sheer accident, it's something that should have never happened uh, because mm -hmm. we had no, there was no, there was no business in playing around with creating a strain uh, that that you if you don't create a strain in the first place, you don't need to create a vaccine for it. You know, right. let's create vac let's create vaccines for for illnesses and and sicknesses that we actually have. Versus going in there and experimenting for, well, there could be a super virus. It's like, there's not going to be a super virus unless you create it. And if there were, were to come to pass that there, there was a super virus, if you will, and I know that's in quotes, if you will, uh, then we could look to figure out ways to kind of control that and at the same time uh, treat people that, that maybe come, uh, that, that come under uh, you know contact with it uh, versus creating something uh, that there's no, there's, there's no reason to create something like that. Anyway, that, that's my little soapbox on that point. Uh, but, but I think the only way to get the Amer America moving in the right direction is to reelect him. Whether he's the great grand guy that you know some people think that he is is besides the point. The evidence is is already there. He had four years against the Democrat, you know, House and Senate, and against Democrat state uh, legislatures uh, that were truly against him, against the media that was without a doubt against him, and against uh, you know, a, a global cabal that was against him. He still got things done against mm -hmm. all odds. And so imagine if you actually supported him a little bit, that, that these people that, that hate him so much actually said, you know what, let's stand on the sidelines and let's call the balls and strikes. If he's out of bounds, we're going to call it. Uh, you know, it, but if but if he's but if he's right, if he's doing things that are good, let's let's give him the, his due. Uh, but they won't do that. And I, I think if, if they if they got out of the way, 
you would see a lot of things move in the right direction. But then all of a sudden, what would happen is people would realize, well, we don't need a big government. We don't need Democrats and their, their flawed, destructive, and evil ideology. Maybe we can vote for some Republicans. Maybe we can vote for people who are truly about the Constitution. And 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 if, if he were to, you know, if that were to ever come to pass, uh, they would lose their power for sure. Then, of course, all that money that they that they that they scare people to, to donate to their cause would go away, and it would dry up, and a lot of people would be destitute out of the streets, having to actually work for a real living, versus that going around scaring people like the Clintons do. Yeah, <laughs> completely right. Um, you know, you brought up the uh, COVID pandemic, and I um, I do think it was a pandemic because uh, if you look at what happened, uh, motor voter mail-in ballots, all the right. things that ended up screwing up the 2020 election, or at least a lot of them, uh, happened as a result of the so-called uh, pandemic. And uh, I, I agree, I think it was a pandemic. And uh, I don't think, and I'm sorry to say this, I don't think Donald Trump responded quite as well as he could have because one of the problems Trump had was that he he inherited an Obama uh, administrative group that were deeply embedded in leadership positions. Right. And uh, sadly, he didn't replace many of those positions. Now, some of it was because they refused to move forward with his uh, nominations. They didn't, right. when he ended up after four years, he still had half of the uh, government positions he was trying to fill with his people had not been filled. Right. And, and so we've got a lot of reasons for it, but the bottom line is 2020, I believe, was planned to derail his presidency. Yeah, I, I think you're possibly right on that. And I, I was doing an event with a, a friend of mine who was a he was an he's an he's, he is an attorney, but he was working as an attorney in the State Department as a political appointee. And we were talking about kind of deep state and this and that. And, and we're, we're, when people say deep state, people think that there's some sort of like you know. I don't know some old organization going back to, you know, biblical times that's been been in the works, you know, behind the scenes and all this. Some people have that in their mind, and in in reality, the deep state in this country is essentially, uh, you know, political appointees getting turned into official positions. And what they'll do, they'll hire them on early on in in, in a given administration, like the Obama administration, knowing that they're going to be there. Uh, for many years to come, well after mm -hmm. Obama leaves office, and they can slow things up. Now, that they may not necessarily go against the rules and regulations or the laws that are in place, but they'll work within the confines of the law to, to go as slow as they absolutely can to slow, say, uh, President Trump's agenda. And of course, that we, we saw them do that on a lot of a lot of, a lot of cases. And, and he pointed to a lot of people that he worked with in the State Department that are that are now career officials who once upon a time were political appointees during the Clinton or Obama administration who've been there for years and years. And of course, it's hard to get rid of somebody unless they absolutely break the law or refuse to do their job. But you can't really necessarily say, well, you need to get, you know, uh, you need to work this fast. You know, there's no real way to say somebody has to work that fast, but they'll go as slow as they absolutely can to slow a, 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 an op opposing president's agenda. But that's basically the agenda uh, the, mm -hmm. of, of the quote unquote deep state. And he asked me, he said, let me ask you a question. Would you want to come into the State Department or somewhere else uh, as a career official and kind of plant yourself there and and down the road, you know, whenever a, a, a Democrat takes over, 
slow their agenda. And, and I said, no, I said, I have no, no thought in my mind of being a career official uh, outside of the, the career I just had in the military uh, to slow somebody else's agenda. I have better things to do with my life. He said, exactly. He said, the, the people on the right that, that think the way you do, you know, they don't think of going into government to, 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 to screw with somebody's life uh, is the way to go. He said, but they don't think that way. They think mm -hmm. that their way is, is the right way. And if they have to slow somebody else's agenda, so be it. And, and so that's the left, the mentality, if you will. So that's the kind of the deep state that we actually have in this country is people that were put in place and hired on as career officials, even though they're technically uh, political appointees, uh, but they're, they're hiding and in, in the career, uh, uh, hiding as career officials, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I uh, have personal experience of that in my family. I had right? a an uncle that ended up being uh, almost at the very top of the Department of Interior, and he was a hardcore progressive. And, uh, you know, I know that he uh, did what he could to promote progressive uh, ideologies as the head of uh, the Bureau of Reclamation Department right. of the Interior. He was, he was, uh, he was the head of uh, the second DC uh, in Denver. That's where the interior department was located. Uh, at the time. Right. Uh, right. So. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, the, yeah, you do have, now you do have for continuity of government and continuity of the presidency, uh, re regional, uh, you know, I guess offices, if you will, for different, uh, you know, say interior, uh, you know, agriculture, whatever you do have those offices. So in the event, say the central government in DC were to take it out, that you can still have a functioning government at some level, some functioning federal government at some level uh, that maybe outside of an area that's, let's say, maybe radiated or that's been attacked or whatever the case may be, uh, they can still function as a federal government to have that continuity until you can reconstitute uh, down the road at some point. So, uh, yeah. I, yeah, we do have those as well. And, and that makes sense in, in, the, in the grand scheme of the continuity of government. But at the same time, they should not be out doing things outside of the confines of the law or the Constitution, which sometimes they do, and they do on a lot of ba mm -hmm. bases, especially whenever it comes to, say, BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, you know, they, they run roughshod over local farmers and ranchers and stuff like that, which they should have no no access to ever do that, for sure. And, of mm -hmm. course, if it's, if, if it's public property, federal land, and you have an agreement with local ranchers and stuff like that to use the land to either traverse to another field to that they own on the other side, they should have every right to do so. So whether they have every right to use that land to graze or whatever is maybe besides the point, but to use it to transport, uh, you know, to go back and forth, they should have every right because they're American citizens. They pay their taxes just the same as I do. Yeah, well, and right now, in fact, this is going to be our guest on Sunday. Um, in Montana, we have something uh, called the American Prairie Reserve in eastern Montana, and they're trying to take all the uh, BLM ground out of uh, grazing leases by people who have had grazed their cattle there for a hundred years. Right. And they're trying to destroy that and turn it into a Buffalo commons. This but, is the kind of crap that's going on now. But you, but you know, there's another agenda at play here. And of course I've seen a number of documents and read a number of stories about this uh, where if you can take that power away from the local ranchers to be able to use it as a grazing, well, what happens is you have bigger, bigger moneyed folks that can end up affording ranches and farmland in this country. And of course, we've seen uh, China come in and buy a lot of our farmland up. And of course, I think that maybe is part of that agenda, if you will. And, and it's no, no big secret that it's going on because you look around the country. 
how much land does China actually own and why do they own that land and how did they come to be? You know, mm-hmm. you, you, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, if you had said it, everybody would be like, wow, that's a cuckoo conspiracy theory. Now it's like, it's factual, it's you know, it's, it's, real, it's reality, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And, and certainly big uh, multinationals, guys like uh, Bill Gates, uh, mm-hmm. he's the yeah. largest American property owner uh, now in the United States, he's got more land than Turner by a long right. shot. Right. I was going to say it used to be Ted Turner once upon a yeah, time. It yeah, it used to be Ted Turner. Now it's uh, Bill Gates. So yeah, yeah it, it you know this is uh, this is how they're affecting the agenda. But the Buffalo Commons thing. Uh, my friend Nathan Dashmaker, he's a young man from Montana. He was the head of the Montana Grass Commission. Um, and, uh, you know, they put together a whole program to try to slow down the American Prairie Reserve. But one of the things in the American Prairie Reserve, <clears throat> you're, you're completely right. They're drawing uh, all this money from overseas. Do you know that the Weiss Foundation out of Switzerland, uh, who are very, very progressive, uh, they're the, one, the biggest funders of the American Prairie Reserve. They put close to a billion dollars into that. So yeah, why, why would billionaires or a cabal of billionaires from Switzerland care who uh, about land in Montana? What's the agenda there? It's like they'll come in and say, "Oh, we want it for the American buffalo, you know, the bison, so they can roam around and pr- prance around and ha- have fun, or maybe have a water slide." I don't know what they want to do with them, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but you think about it. What is their agenda here? And you think about on, on its face, it may make sense. You're like. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. They should have a little bit more land to uh, to 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 ha- have, you know. Uh, but all of a sudden, it's like, what's going to come after that? It's like, okay, now the agenda starts to set in once you give an inch to, you know, they take the mile. Yeah, well, and it's agenda twenty one, agenda yes. twenty thirty. That's what's behind all of it. And again, that's taking away individual rights and uh, turning us into a global commons, as they call it. Right. So. Right. Uh, well, Todd, I want to give you a few minutes, and well, you go ahead and finish your thoughts, but I'm going to give you a few minutes to uh, talk about your uh, radio show and some of the things that you're involved in so that uh, our viewers can uh, tune you in as well. Absolutely. But well, let me say this, first of all, President Coolidge had it right whenever he said all liberty is individual liberty. There's no such thing as collective liberty. Uh, you exercise your liberty as an individual, pure and simple. Uh, and of course, the most the, the most basic sovereignty is the individual. I truly believe that. Of course, we do have a need for governments, for sure, at, at different levels, but the government should not overstep their bounds, period, what, whatever level that may be. Uh, and of course, that's why they, we have a constitution, and we need to truly understand it, read that document and respect it and ensure that it can't be interpreted uh, as we go along. It's not a living document. You know, the I think it was Justice Scalise said it, it says what it says and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. And that's the way I look at it. Uh, but if anybody can find me on ToddMcKinley.com, P-O-D-D-M-C-K-I-N-L-A-Y.com. Uh, and of course, there, if you go under media, you can click on uh, Common Sense Conservatives. That's my weekly radio show. We're live every Wednesday night, 7 to 9 Eastern. Uh, where we the, the radio station is out of Nashville, New Hampshire. Uh, but, of course, we stream, and, of course, we, we release as a podcast as well on different social media outlets and, of course, different podcasts like you do, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm doing most of my stuff. And, of course, I'm active in 
politically. Like I said, I'm a, a member at large of Sullivan County uh, Republic or GOP. Uh, I'm also very active in veteran service organizations, which you can see on my website. But I, I won't mention the name here because uh, the, the the organization I do belong to and I'm an officer in isn't uh, it, it is an apolitical organization. We try not to do partisan politics, but I am an officer in veteran service organizations and try to help that way. Uh, and maybe in the next few months I may may go uh, do some work with the Trump uh, campaign. We'll see. And I'm currently running for the school board here in Sullivan County, Tennessee, in the fifth mm -hmm. district. So. We'll see how it turns out uh, uh, by March 5th. I don't know if I'm the nominee or not. And we'll know if Donald Trump wins the, the nomination here in Tennessee, which I am thinking that he's going to. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking so, too. Um, Todd, I, it, it's been a marvelous conversation. I I really look forward to knowing you as an individual. I'm I'm the old guy. I... Uh, uh, ah. you know, I, I've been around a long time. Let's put it that way. Well, you, but, you've been you've been out getting experience. Is what you've been doing. Well, I have, and yeah. and I appreciate young. And I called you a young man, but you really are a young man. Um, I, I appreciate what you're doing because you're my son's age, okay. and uh, I can tell you that uh, you are the future of this country. There's no question about it. And so anything I can do to support and help you, I'm all for. So well, thank you thing. again. Thank you again for being our guest, and I hope you'll come back. I will, sir, when, anytime you want me. And, of course, we need to have you on our show, The Common Sense Conservatives, again, live every Wednesday, 7 to 9 Eastern. Um, I'll be happy to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely, sir. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you, Todd. I want to thank our viewers and our listeners for joining us for Connecting the Dots. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt.